0: Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Carol Adrian, the author of Healing a Divided Nation, How the American Civil War Revolutionized Western Medicine. This is her first book. She's also a film producer as she puts together a documentary on this very topic. Carol, thanks so much for being here
1: oh thanks for inviting me evan i'm really happy to be
0: here yeah great great to have you before we start our interview i want to invite listeners to our patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going go to patreon.com axelbank history we will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy the beginning of the movie lincoln shows a horrific battle scene if you're familiar with it men in blue and gray are locked in hand-to-hand combat There are fists, spears, guns. The division and the brutality are apparent as soldiers discard the humanity of their opponents and literally try to beat them to death. Some of them died on the battlefield. But Carol Adrian explains that for the most part, the most dangerous aspect of being wounded in the Civil War came after you were carted away, if you were still living. More died from infection than from the more vivid parts of the battle that you would see there um, in the movie itself, Wikipedia says it was about two-thirds who died after the fact from things like infections and sepsis and all the rest of it. So, Carol, first of all, how did you realize that the Civil War was not only a turning point for our nation, but also for our medicine?
1: When I began to do the research... My awareness of the popular conception of medicine at the time of the Civil War was that it had not advanced at all really in the previous 100 years, that the medicine of 1860 was pretty much the same as the medicine of 1760. But the more I dealt with primary source materials, digging through many archives, libraries, and repositories, it seemed to me that medicine really did advance tremendously clinically. Um, The greatest irony, I think, of that period was that this is the time when Dr. Louis Pasteur in Paris was discovering, working on the germ theory of disease, that disease was not something that arose by spontaneous generation. And then Dr. Joseph Lister, also British, but working in Scotland, was working on the problem of infection. And he was able to successfully treat infection with carbolic acid, but all these fantastic discoveries did not reach the American physicians in time to adopt those practices during the Civil War.
0: And one of the things that we've seen, um, I know this from reading about the assassination of President Garfield is that many doctors didn't even believe the advancements once they did make it to our shores.
1: Very true. It (laughs) took a long time to convince.
0: Uh, So you're standing on the battlefield, you're ducking and covering, and all of a sudden you feel it. You've been shot. Assuming the enemy wasn't right in front of you and you still had a chance to survive, what would happen next? How were you cared for?
1: You know, interestingly, an awful lot of the reports of uh, people who sustained wounds from bullets or shrapnel was that they did not feel pain instantly. And in fact, a lot of the reports from medical personnel said that the first night in the hospital, the first night after a battle, the hospital was very quiet because the true pain really had not begun to bloom yet. So if you were lying on that field, this is a time before ambulances. It's a time before trained, skilled nurses were around at the beginning of the Civil War. So you really hope that somebody would scrape you up and get you to a place where aid was available. And I always say that even if you were in a city at this point in time and got run over by a horse and wagon, that you really hoped somebody would get word to your family to come scrape you up. And then you hoped that somebody at home would be able to take care of you during convalescence because and, it,
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and what was the aid like? I mean, when 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 you were finally brought to a hospital and I'm using the term in quotes, when you were brought to a place where they were going to care for you, what did they do? What did they know how to do?
1: Well, the first stop really would be a field dressing station. So this was where the assessments were made. Uh, this is really, you begin to see the beginning of of awareness of triage, which doesn't really appear with a title until World, world War I. But if you were wounded in uh, a limb, in an arm or leg, chances are that you would be, you You would undergo an amputation because they did learn very quickly that was the fastest way to save a life. So they learned not to cut near a joint. They learned that the further you were from the torso, that's where. So that. And
0: you were awake the whole time. I mean, right? I mean, you're awake the whole time or just about?
1: No, you know, that's another popular misconception two of the drugs that were really widely available to both armies during the civil war were ether and chloroform the anesthetics and they actually were in use with dentists rather than surgeons it's hard to realize that before the civil war maybe 300 doctors in the entire country had ever witnessed surgery or seen a gunshot wound so the practice of putting people under, as we say now, was very far from their thoughts. But the dentists had begun to use anesthesia in the 1840s. Um, William Thomas Green Morton really is, is, bears the accolades for having brought that into common use. So 1847, a paper was presented in Philadelphia at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia about the use of ether for surgery. So statistics show us that pretty much every surgery during the Civil War was done with the use of anesthesia. Now, it was not moderated the way it is now. It was a pretty (laughs) crude, you soaked a cloth with ether or chloroform, you put it over the patient's nose and mouth, and you had about a nine minute window where they were really out so um so most of the surgeries really did incorporate anesthesia uh
0: what were the outcomes that they were hoping for Uh, was the outcome simply to save your life um or were they hoping to be able to did they believe they could get you back to some semblance of being able to live a normal life even with a significant gunshot wound
1: what they were hoping, I think, was that they could get you back into battle.
0: Oh, <laughs> how dare they? I know. One shot and I'm out. Come on.
1: Boom. <laughs> uh, it, it was an odd period because this was, well, this is the period of Victoriana, really. And if you were missing a limb, it, it was equated with missing part of your mental capacity. So it was regarded as feminizing in a man. It uh, There's there's a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes where he said part of the, the goal was to be accepted under the chandeliers, to be able to move back into society seamlessly. So I think that the, the primary hope was, can we patch you up and get you back in the front lines? And the second was, can we save your life and let wow. you go back and... To your family.
0: That's a tough crowd. Um, you say that the goal of the that the, the theory of medicine at the time, or the approach, maybe the approach might be the better word, the approach is that it was art and not science, right?
1: Correct. It really doesn't begin to be regarded as a science until the American Civil War, that it for centuries medicine was regarded as an art. So uh and it's it's kind of an odd dichotomy there because certain things that we think of as intrinsic, valuable tools, uh, microscopes, microscopes really were around for centuries. That uh, the optics of of a microscope, but they were not in common use. Um, even Harvard Medical School didn't own any until after the Civil War. So some of the tools were available, but it, they weren't integrated into the techniques in the way we accept them now
0: and where did they think infections came from I, I, it was like a matter of chance right it was like oh you got infected that's too bad
1: it was now they were aware of contagion to a certain degree and and they did know enough to segregate a uh, people with smallpox or yellow fever which were two of the big killers so there were in in the hospitals as hospitals began to be bigger there were wards set aside for known contagious diseases like that but again it really well they thought malaria uh which was from the italian for bad air so the miasma they thought it rose from the swamps and you breathed it and and uh they weren't that far off in a way but um They they really did not have a handle on from whence it came.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, uh, What different kinds of staff members were there to support the soldiers from a medical perspective? Did doctors and nurses follow their soldiers from behind the front lines and stay at a safe distance so that when a battle broke out, they could be nearby? And what were the facilities that they had during the Civil War, if we can call it that?
1: Well, at the beginning, it was kind of in the category of wishful thinking. (laughs) Uh, It was really the first battle of Bull Run that brought this to the attention of, of the Union Army, in fact, because they were expecting a victory, which they did not get. And then it took a couple days to clear the field of wounded. No ambulance service no trained nurses. Nurses were usually men who had been wounded but were still functional enough to help carry stretchers. Um, it it was it, it was a pretty bleak situation at that point. the organization was non-existent. so that's where we get heroes like Major Jonathan Letterman who assessed this after a couple battles and could not believe how bad it was, there are an awful lot of stories of soldiers having to walk to cities or towns nearby to get medical treatment.
0: Um, Were these folks who were doing the medical care, um, were they considered enlisted in the military? Were they under the command of you know the way they would be now. If you're a naval doctor at some level, you you know you report to the higher ups until you get to the you know civilian leadership, the Secretary of Defense, and the President. Or was this kind of like a um, an auxiliary team that was just sort of there on hand to make sure that they could support the side that they you know believed in?
1: They were military. There were a lot of contract surgeons who were not enlisted uh, formally. But they were uh, military. I mean, when you look at at the beginning of the Civil War, the Union Army really had in the area of 120, 130 doctors in the Army. By the end of the Civil War, there were more than 12,000. So, uh, And then there, were, there was an awful lot of disagreement after the war when people tried to get pensions, and some of the contract surgeons couldn't get them. So it was, it was pretty unorganized.
0: (laughs) That sounds terrible. Uh, Doctors, as you say, weren't just battling a lack of knowledge. They were also battling this new kind of warfare that had broken out that the civil war represented that made the wounds even more tricky than they were before. How and why?
1: This was a part I actually found fascinating, and I'm not even a gun person. (laughs) But for several hundred years, any long-barreled gun uh, was known as a musket. And we think it might have come from uh, the French musket. A lot of guns were named after animals or the Italian for a crossbow. So they used muskets. So these guns had long barrels that were smooth barrels. So what you did, the ammunition was a little globe like a marble. So they have found stone ones, but basically they were made in molds of lead. So you had to push that little marble of a ball down the barrel. You started at the end of the barrel with a tool called a ramrod. You had to wrap it in a piece of cloth or it would bang around on its way out of the barrel and make a very erratic trajectory but um and it took a while all this loading and reloading well the civil war is the pinnacle of advances in weapons what they started to do was rifle the inside of the barrels so the what would happen would be that the ammunition would spin inside the barrel which gave it increased speed and velocity and the new ammunition that caused most of the Civil War wounds was called the mini ball. So despite its name, it really was shaped, it was a more bullet-shaped uh, projectile with rifling at its base. So it was developed by a French army officer, uh, Claude Miny, Uh, And this could go through two or three bodies in one shot. The the mini ball just changed the universe of combat and warfare. Um, all, the other things that did, we don't really think about them as civil war things, but torpedoes, which had advanced over several centuries and were controlled electrically, so they could take out ships. Or uh, one of the most famous, the Napoleon cannon, which was a was called the twelve pounder and it was copied from a French cannon, and it could actually fire in two ways. So cannon fire, the trajectory is pretty much flat, but howitzers have an arced trajectory. So they could get people in trenches, so you could knock out the fortifications, and then the howitzer could take out the
0: soldiers. And So so what did that mean for the doctors? As they, what did all this mean for them as they battled the wounds that these new weapons created?
1: They were horrified. They were really, if you got wounded by a lot of these things, like cannon shots, uh, pretty much obliterated the human body on the field. There was really nothing left to save for the most part. And so, as I had said, if you got wounded in a limb, they could deal with that. But if you got wounded, in the head, in the abdomen, in the chest, you pretty much, if you were lucky, they tried to make you comfortable and let you go. And so they did not, they did not attempt. Because the other thing is they were dealing with thousands of casualties. So there was no resectioning. There was none of the delicate kind of surgery that we, thank God, have today. It was pretty crude.
0: So what were your sources for this? Uh, one of the things that I noticed is that you were from Philadelphia and there was a major archive that you were able to tap because you were in uh, you are in or because that is in Philadelphia. So I assume it was convenient that you were there and that the archives were there. But what else did you do to piece this story together?
1: It was I actually started doing the research because I was doing a four-part documentary series which I I took some time off to write the book. Um but uh we are really blessed. Philadelphia has more libraries and archives than any city but Washington, DC. So the College of Physicians of Philadelphia is an amazing repository of medical history and, and just all kind of photographs. It's it's amazing. But it also contains the Mutter Museum, which is a museum of medical anomaly. So I really got to see and handle a lot of things from the Civil War period that were pretty amazing. But we have the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, I would say, Library Company of Philadelphia, which is associated with the free library system, but separate. It's one of the largest holders of American historical documents in the country, uh, eight stories of amazing stuff.
0: <laughs> and are there diaries from both doctors and patients describing what happened that you were able to tap?
1: I was. I I used more than forty institutions. So some things came from um, the Daughters of Charity in Emmitsburg, Maryland. One of the sisters who served as a nurse wrote a handwritten diary that was astonishing to to be able to work with so all these different places uh had different kinds of materials and yes there were quite a number of diaries some things had been published some things were there were there were records i used at the historical society of pennsylvania where they were letters from soldiers to their families the shortage of paper was so severe that the original letter was written horizontally across the paper. The family would get it, and they would write vertically back to the soldier, which really tells you a lot about supplies. Mm. Uh,
0: uh, Talk about your path to this book. What is your career path? And um, how did you decide, you know what, it's time for me to finally write this book?
1: <laughs> it was a bit convoluted. I was actually working on a documentary series about music and the brain.
0: So, is, is that are you a film producer by trade? Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm a filmmaker. So, a, a book was not really in, in my plans, but I, I was researching. We have an incredible library system in Philadelphia, and our central library had some wonderful subscription databases. So I was, uh, I had gone to dinner with my mom the night before, and she was a lifelong journalist in Philadelphia. And she told me that Philadelphia has more Civil War statuary than any city in the country. And when I went to the library to work on music and the brain the next day, I kept thinking about it. And I thought, well, no battles were fought here. Like why? Why would we have like dozens? of Civil War monuments and statues. So when I got to these subscription databases, I googled Philadelphia Civil War. Wow, what came up was the fact that Philadelphia was the center of medicine of the country at the time. The, med- the largest medical schools and oldest were here. The, uh, during the war, the two largest uh, military hospitals in the North were here with thousands of beds anyway that i i actually was not happy to discover this amazing story <laughs> because it diverted my path <laughs> from what i what i had in mind but i thought oh my god the the more i looked the more incredible it was and and how it impacted society as well so i uh i thought somebody must have done this but nobody had. So, I kind of felt the story to use an old-fashioned word had been vouchsafed to me. <laughs> I thought, I have no choice, this has landed in my lap. Well, once I started to work on it, it was it was impossible to turn away from because it was a story, not only about the evolution of clinical medicine, but the evolution of societal positions of women, of African-Americans. And, and when COVID hit, we were, About a third of the way through, there are 80. My documentary series is based on primary source materials. So it's pretty much all quotations from people of the time. Um, It required 80 different voiceovers to tell this story. So I had researched all these original quotes. Well, we had recorded 40 of the 80 at the time that COVID hit. And the studios did not want us in there. <laughs> you know, it was it was pretty it, it got pretty grim. Well, I had always thought it might be nice to, to have a book of of pictures of photographs and graphics to go with the series. So I thought, well, maybe I can, you know, start working on something like that. And so I literally I Googled best literary agency in New York City. <laughs> Why start small?
0: Yeah, I was going to say you must have found a couple.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I found two. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I sent a synopsis from my grant proposals for the for the film and, and the contact information. And five days later, I got a call from a Trident Media Group in New York, and they said, "We see a book here." And I thought, oh, great. But I had no idea that they saw a serious <laughs> history book. <laughs> so I spent the next two years. It came out uh, in August on August 9th.
0: So cool. What a what a great story. Um, so back to the topic at hand. Once the war started and they get their feet wet, as you mentioned, Battle of Bull Run happens and they, we start to proceed through the years. And it is hard to believe. You know, It's four years of intense fighting. Um How did medicine start to change? How did the ranks of doctors and nurses start to change inside? How did their knowledge change in scope? And then how did their procedures and their systems also change?
1: Well, at the time the war started, what was considered a large hospital was in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. It was a military hospital with 40 beds. Most hospitals in the country were eight or 10 bed infirmaries that usually were attached to almshouses and hospitals were a place where poor people went to die. This was not where you went for treatment to recover. So with these tens of thousands of casualties occurring at frighteningly rapid speeds, women said, this is as much a woman's war as it is a man's war. And women who were regarded at the time as passive, modest, <laughs> um, came out of the parlors and the kitchens and everywhere else in force. And they they insisted they came to the battlefields. They came to the hospitals. They insisted on being part of the solution. And for the most part, at the beginning of their appearance. They were not welcomed. There's one story about after the Battle of Shiloh, 40 Confederate women traveled by train to come help clear up. And the doctor who was in charge of the first hospital where they arrived said, no more women or flies are going to be admitted. So they, the women really fought hard to be included. And the other people who fought to be included were African American doctors, most of whom were not admitted to medical schools in America. Quite a few had gone to medical schools in Canada, where the, it was a very different atmosphere. And Dr. Uh, Alexander Thomas Augusta.
0: Yeah, I had his name uh,
1: uh,
0: uh, ferreted out to ask you to talk about him. So go ahead.
1: You, you focused in on the right person. Yeah, there you go. He was pretty amazing. He, one of the things that stood in the way of people wanting to go to medical school, if you were African-American, was that many southern states had laws against learning to read if you were black. There were severe penalties, not only for the people who were enslaved, but for the white masters who allowed it. So it was literally a, a you risked your life in many cases to learn to read. And, and uh, Alexander Augusta, wanted he from the time he was in ch- a child, he wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to be a healer. And he really had a difficult time. It wasn't until he was college age that he actually found some tutors. The University of Pennsylvania would not admit him. But some faculty members, it, it's a little murky, but apparently they agreed to secretly teach him. Well, once he was a great student and once he had achieved literacy, he he married and he moved to Toronto to go to uh, Trinity Medical College there, where he was regarded as one of the most brilliant students. When the war started in America, he wrote to President Lincoln and said that he felt as a person of color that he wanted to be involved to support the uh american blacks in in the war and it went back and forth about whether they were going to admit him any after a long battle and many letters if he was admitted to he was enlisted in the u.s army as a major and he became later the first black um hospital administrator in america the first uh he, he was a brevet lieutenant colonel by the time he, he retired from the army, but he was the first black um, medical instructor in at Howard University as well. He was a big deal.
0: Did the systems vary based on which side you were on? Did the union and confederacy approach their medical teams and systems differently or were they relatively similar because of the science of the day?
1: They were pretty similar, the the two Surgeons General, Samuel Preston Moore in the South and William Hammond. Um, the Union actually cycled through four different Surgeon Generals during the war. But Hammond was really the one who had the most impact. So he and the Confederate Surgeon General Moore had an awful lot in common. They were pretty disparate in age. Moore was 48 when he was talked into taking over the Surgeon General post, which he really had no intention of doing and kind of did reluctantly. And Hammond was 34, very brash. But they both had really revolutionary attitudes on how to improve the situations. So some of the things they did were very similar. They both embraced the European design of pavilion hospitals uh which were long narrow buildings usually uh, like hu- like spokes on a wheel so they housed thousands of patients but supplies and medical personnel moved more easily through them um, one interesting thing the confederacy included dentists in their ranks the union did not despite some serious pressure they just we're not going to like get into the whole dentistry thing, but the Confederacy having fewer men could not afford to have people out, you know, not on the field fighting because of issues with their teeth. So they had a very serious dental department, which the union did not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of what they did, of course the South with fewer people was at an extreme disadvantage just due to numbers but yeah. they both really revolutionized some of the same systems in independently of one another
0: were you able to detect um any changes or any impact on the battles themselves whether it was strategy or technology used or or the um uh, the way or where a battle was fought Based on the medical efforts being made,
1: this was a time like these battles were not. Uh, these battles were scheduled, so you had days beforehand where they brought in all the armaments and the troops and the supplies and and set up for it. Um, and this was the the primary tactic at the time it was called the massed infantry attack so you would line up your soldiers in straight lines facing one another the two opposing armies and they would shoot at each other until the first lines were down and they dragged the bodies away and the second lines moved up and and of course as the weapons got better they were killing each other far more efficiently but um certain things changed in terms of tactics, where the Civil War, as the weapons got better, had very little hand-to-hand combat, which had been something very common in warfare for centuries. So soldiers in America, uh, in the Revolutionary War, there was a lot of a lot more hand-to-hand combat or they were clubbing one another with the butt end of the rifles. I mean, it but as as the weapons became more sophisticated they didn't have to be as close so you could once once the mini ball and the rifle barrels came into common use the the armies were actually much further apart is that that the kind of thing you mean
0: yeah i mean yeah exactly yeah it's just interesting to to hear um you know something that doesn't appear to be connected to the battle is actually impacting
1: the battle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's where I realized like the ripples from something like this extended so far out. So like in my book, I mean, I I talk about surgical techniques and medicines used and things like that, but it seemed to me, I mean, there's a lot of information and some wonderful books where they really go deep into techniques of of surgery and medication. But what seemed to me to be the most revolutionary and had the longest impact over time was how it changed society, really, where women became accepted as people who could be uh, trusted to manage a hospital. To uh, Phoebe Pember, uh, a Woman from the South that she managed Chimborazo. She was the head of Chimborazo Hospital in Virginia, which had 8,000 beds and a reputation for a le- very low death rate. But that would have never happened a couple years before the war. And because
0: the ranks grew so much, did people on either side then begin to start believing in the cause even more than they had before? In other words, did it bring the different sides together? Because more people were now involved, because there were women, because there were Blacks involved in the not just the fighting, but in the effort itself, did that begin to solidify the public opinion behind the efforts being made?
1: Most of my reference materials and experience are with the people in the medical field. And yes, absolutely, it did change. And one of the things that started to trickle in on both sides that that a lot of doctors were upset with being having their their medical uh people captured so what would happen would be say they captured a whole regiment and took them to a prison camp they would sort out who you know were their doctors among them and and Later in the war, they began to parole the doctors, but they would, you know, get them to sign something that said they wouldn't try to escape. And then they wouldn't, you know, come on, you got to (laughs) help, you know, like set them up doing surgery. But what happened was an awful lot of people began to believe within the medical community that there should be provisions to protect the wounded and their caretakers in times of war. And this went through quite a a period of time, including efforts in Europe, um, where you get the beginning of the first Geneva Convention in 1864, where this was a primary goal to establish the neutrality of the wounded and those caring for them.
0: And just real quick, what did doctor mean back then? someone who just practiced a lot? I mean, was there an actual school that doctors would go to, or it was just someone who was interested in the body and seeing how good they could dress wounds?
1: (laughs) It was kind of the wild west of American medicine. (laughs) The, the, The American Medical Association was not established until quite some time after the war. And what they're like, many, many people, including some women, they learned from fathers or husbands or they kind of, you know, shadowed somebody who was a physician to learn. There were independent schools of medicine that sprang up. Now, the first medical school in the country was the University of Pennsylvania, uh, in which opened uh, its medical school in 1765. But there weren't. Most medical schools were simply a faculty of professors, and you bought tickets for lectures. Midwifery, poulticing, things like that, and you went to these lectures. And the second year, you pretty much went to those same lectures again. Then a panel of from the faculty would decide whether to confer a degree upon you. But you could call yourself doctor. (laughs) Now a lot of I could
0: too, but it doesn't mean much. Well, not today. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't mean anything, right?
1: Today there's a little bit more. Yeah, uh, a little bit, just a hair. (laughs) But, uh, but a lot of the the men who served as surgeons in the Civil War were trained as dentists.
0: Uh, say a word about Clara Barton, because she's a revolutionary figure, name a lot of people know. Um, what do we need to know about Clara Barton and the efforts she made and also her legacy?
1: Clara Barton was an amazing person. Now, sometimes you see her referred to as a nurse. She did not call herself a nurse. She called herself a relief worker so she was a very shy young girl from New England who had taken care of a younger brother who got hurt falling during a barn raising and although he did survive she took good care of him and and he became an assistant quartermaster during the war years later but she went to work in Washington DC uh which also was a big first and when the battle started, she offered to do the work of two men for one pay. So more anyway, everybody turned her down and Clara fondly was like, I can handle this. So she was a superb organizer. She She tapped everybody she knew in New England and elsewhere for donations. She collected supplies. She commandeered wagons and horses to get them to the battlefields. There's one story about Clara. I I have no reason to believe it's not true. She was on the battlefield tending to a wounded man and a bullet went through her sleeve, killed the patient and did not wound her. Uh, So you can imagine on on that field as things whistled by your head. Um, Anyway, she was present at so many East Coast battles with supplies but she got very interested in those who had been captured or died in prisons and after the war she headed an office for missing soldiers she responded to 60,000 letters about men who were missing or presumed dead she also uh With Dorrance Atwater, who was a teenager who was captured, he was one of the first prisoners in Andersonville in Georgia. And he actually assisted in the prison hospital, and he began to keep a secret list of those who died, because he was afraid that after the war, the Confederates would not release that information. So he hooked up with Clara after the war, and they were able to locate 22,000 or or identify 22,000 men who had died at Andersonville and were instrumental in it becoming a uh, a national site of mm. the cemetery.
0: Uh, I want to ask about Abraham Lincoln. Um, maybe we spend too much time on this podcast asking about Abraham Lincoln, but I love him. So let's ask about Lincoln. Um, there's a, an amazing scene towards the end of the war where he goes and tours around and visits many of the, or at least as many hospitals as he could get to that were within shouting distance of Washington, DC. And he meets with wounded and some dying soldiers. Um, How did he approach his job as doctor and consoler in chief?
1: He was very interested in technology, Lincoln. He was an avid reader of the New York Times, of Scientific American. He subscribed to an annual journal that basically dealt with science and technology. And he had a reputation among his friends that wherever they took him, if he saw some machine or technique that was new to him, he would crawl under it. He would (laughs) cite it, whether it was a weapon or not. I don't know exactly about the um, consulting or consoling and consulting but it was very important to him there's one story about him I really do love uh that he wanted the Union soldiers to have the best possible weapons and at one point during the war Christopher Minor Spencer from Connecticut who had developed the first repeating rifle the inventors used to bring their their inventions to lincoln to check out and the white house was pretty wide open at the point i mean you kind of showed up and asked to see him and <laughs> a lot of times you got to see him so he showed up with the repeating rifle there was a standing law in washington dc at the time that you could not fire a gun within the city limits but lincoln was like i gotta try this thing <laughs> so they got a naval aid and a, and a crude pine target which they took to a park across from the white house and set up well lincoln tried this rifle and he hit the mark over and over he was really impressed with it Mm. and when they went back to the white house and this is how i know like lincoln understood superstardom he presented the inventor with a piece of wood from the target they had used (laughs) so
0: that's cool uh,
1: but he had that gun reviewed by the Army and the Navy, and delivered tens of thousands of them to Union soldiers.
0: Mm. Uh, Then he became a patient. Unfortunately, uh, of course, they couldn't save his life, but how important was that particular incident to the future of medicine?
1: It's a real point about where Civil War medicine was and where it wasn't. I mean, he was the most important man in the country, and, and he was attended by the top doctors.
0: Sometimes phones ring on our show. It's no problem. It's happened many, 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 many
1: times. (laughs) I'm sorry. No
0: need to be sorry. He
1: he actually, he, he had a pretty checkered medical history, Lincoln. When he was nine, he got kicked in the head by a horse. He was unconscious for hours. His mother, a close aunt and uncle died that same year. He we know that he had at least two bouts with malaria. And after the Gettysburg Address, he contracted smallpox, as did his valet, um, who died from it. Unfortunately, Um, they were very close. Uh, The the valet was African-American. Lincoln paid for his funeral and took care of his family. Hmm. After that, he did recover from smallpox. But when he was killed there's a quote from a a very famous British physician, uh, Sir Thomas Longmore, who was their uh, surgeon general at the time. And he wrote in in a book about technique, that the best tool for assessing the location of a bullet is the finger of the surgeon. So when you think about it, they were putting their fingers in the hole in Lincoln's head to discover They were trying to establish whether there was a bullet in there. And they used a tool, uh, I'm just thinking about it, that that would detect. it, It was a long piece of porcelain on a flexible rod. You put it into the wound. And if the porcelain, which was unglazed, came out with a black mark on it, you knew it had hit the lead ball. And if it didn't, you knew it had hit bone. So really this seems
0: the- ill advised
1: somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the I mean yeah. that was the state of things at the time.
0: So how did the medical system change? I mean your book is about the impact that it has even today. What do we need to know about where our system is now and how the Civil War influenced it?
1: Well, to the two primary things that we get from the Civil War that are evident every day in our lives for one ambulances their ambulances were not a thing in america at the time of the civil war and uh major jonathan letterman appalled by what had happened in some of the battles he got permission from lincoln to uh, to establish an ambulance corps so b- within months They were able to clear a field of thousands of casualties in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we get is skilled professional nursing care. All these women who came out. Now, Florence Nightingale from England really is a person to where the origin of professional nursing in in the West can be traced. And she had uh, gone to the war in Crimea. And she had a lot of theories about, you know, cleanliness and ventilation and regular medications and things that she wrote a book called Notes on Nursing, which is still in print. (laughs) Very, um, you can buy that. But thousands of women trained uh, through Florence Nightingale's Methods with uh dorothea dix in america mm. with dr elizabeth blackwell the first woman to achieve a medical degree in america and they came out of the war with nursing regarded as a profession uh, worthy of respect mm. so nurses and ambulances
0: we got them I, that sound that that that's big stuff uh <laughs> the, the, i have recent experience not with an ambulance but with nurses and um my goodness, the whole time you think to yourself, what would I do without these folks? It's um un- it's unbelievable. Um, what do you imagine if you were to write a book about today's wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, maybe even Ukraine, uh, what do you imagine you would focus on if you were to write a similar themed book about the impact on medicine? I mean, just as an example, I um have read you know a lot about the Iraq war. And one of the big things was that so many lives were saved because they could get the patients out of the battlefield very quickly um, and that they were able to get them to what are now amazing military hospitals with the greatest doctors in the world, very close to the battlefield with, of course, the the advances in modern technology and all the things that doctors back then could never dream of. But what do you imagine you'd focus on, on a medically themed book Um. As it relates to today's wars,
1: I think you've really pinpointed something. And I would say, at the time of the Civil War, where people sometimes waited wounded on a field for days up to a week for rescue and evacuation, by the time we get to the war in Vietnam, they're coming in much faster with helicopter rescue and evac- evacuation by Afghanistan, I believe it's referred to as the golden five minutes. So you're right, the speed at which we're able to go in, grab the wounded and get them to a facility made huge differences. And
0: it's, it's remarkable. Um, uh, what does the way medicine was administered during the Civil War tell us about how we should approach our differences and disagreements in society? today?
1: I think that's, if there's anything beautiful that comes out of it, that's what that's what comes because you came up with situations in the Civil War after the Battle of Gettysburg, when the Confederates had retreated, 5,000 Confederate soldiers still lay wounded on that field. So the Union medics had to take care of them. And, and just in these situations where sometimes the armies shared, you know, they, they came in and took over or captured a regiment, but they'd leave them with some medical supplies or they'd share what they had. So I think that salvation of life began to transcend race and gender during that war. And, and if there's anything beautiful to me that would be it
0: we all deserve care in a time of need period yes um how's your movie going and what does what do you hope the movie achieves and that the book can't necessarily achieve because they're different mediums and how important is it for you to have both of these things going to have your message get out there
1: well it was an amazing experience writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have to say that I'm a filmmaker, so it involves other human beings. Yeah. There's music, <laughs> there are sound effects, <laughs> there are all these exciting layers in, in the film. But I think with both of them, if there's one message that I would like to impart, it's the beauty of the American heart of compassion, of dedication, of hard work in incredibly adverse circumstances. And that this situation and this period of time, to me, is an example of Americans at their best. This is people with terrible prejudices of, of every type who were forced into a situation of saving lives, of where it was the better, I think the phrase is the better angels of our nature. So I think this is a noble thing that happened in the midst of this horror, the fact that they were sharing supplies, or union medics were saving Confederate soldiers, that that or that women were begrudgingly admitted to the medical arena. That it's those things that made it made the Americans a cut above where we had been. And I feel like whether there is a genetic connection or not, there is a cultural and spiritual connection of Americans today to Americans of the Civil War period. And that anything good that came from that we carry with us.
0: How did writing this book during COVID-19 resonate with you and watching all the medical heroes go about their business and where it really was a war against a pandemic?
1: It was shocking. I mean, the Civil War, it was a four-year epidemic of violence and disease. So when the bodies were piling up in refrigerated trucks on the streets of New York, it was It was horrible and it was reminiscent. And, and I thought, what have we learned? What have we learned? Uh, it, it tells us that history can repeat itself in horrifying ways as well as in good ways. It was a, a lot of people came together, I think, to applaud the medical community, uh, which was a really good thing we were not fighting the same prejudices of gender as we have dealt with in the civil war it was it, it was a very uncomfortable parallel to tell you the truth mm.
0: carol adrian the author of healing a divided nation how the american civil war revolutionized western medicine thanks so much for being here
1: my pleasure. Thank you, Evan.
0: I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.